Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's July the 9th, 2021, in our ongoing Age of Crisis. Um, I'm not sure which crisis we're supposed to be talking about. On the one hand, today's uh, headlines seem to be suggesting that a certain crisis, the COVID crisis, is beginning to end. The CDC issued new school guidance today, an emphasis on full reopening, although if you listen to the news, you watch the headlines and you listen to some of the inane stuff on, on, on social media and television, you'd think that COVID, the COVID crisis was still here. Perhaps that's a a third crisis, the crisis of information. But the second crisis is very much uh, with us. Um, this weekend is supposed to bring uh, record-breaking temperatures. Every, every day this summer seems to bring record-breaking temperatures somewhere, particularly to the West, where I'm speaking to you from in San Francisco. Uh, the New York Times has a headline today about post-apocalyptic movies that the heat wave is killing marine life en masse. Here we have an image of a dead sea star in Western Vancouver. Things are bad out there. Yesterday we talked about the sea being turned into a giant soup. Uh, so the environmental crisis um, in our age of crisis, the, the crisis of the warming of the planet, of the destruction of everything natural, our destruction of everything natural is if not the new crisis, the crisis in the headlines replacing COVID. Um, about this time last year, uh, I had a guest, David Gessner. I'm not sure if he'll like me uh, describing him as one of America's leading uh, environmental writers. He is. Maybe he has a better word. He had, a, at that point, a, a new uh, book out, uh, Leave It As It Is, a book about his travels, uh, following um, the, the wilderness uh, trip of, the, of America's apparently greatest conservationist, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. You'll also uh, know Gessner. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, All the Wild That Remains. Interestingly enough, uh, Gessner has been very busy in our 2020-2021 age of crisis. He has a new book out. I'm not quite sure how he does it, but every year seems to be a new book, an important book. This book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau um, in the Age of Crisis. Uh, and I have him, of course, looking like, appropriately enough, Thoreau in his throne somewhere in the wilderness. Uh, David, um, this word crisis, is it overused um, or underused at the moment? It is emphatically not overused. Um, yesterday, uh, I did a drive which I described to you in private after our talk, which was from Bluff, Utah, where the Bears Ears National Monument crisis is going on or is being resolved, to where I am in Torrey, Utah right now. My car thermometer got up to 106. When I got here, I called my wife back at our home in North Carolina, where she was encountering the, uh, the season's first um, tropical storm, originally looking like a hurricane. 
And I will tell you, as somebody who spends a lot of time in both the East and the West, that the apprehensive feeling at this time of year about wildfires is very similar to the feeling we start to get in North Carolina every year around this time. It used to be they, the storms would come sporadically. For the last half dozen years, they've come uh, systematically, regularly. And so I do feel like we are seeing the kind of coming to fruition, the theories of climate change are now the practice of climate change. And for people like my daughter, who's 18, it isn't a theoretical thing off in the future. It's something she's encountering firsthand right now. And that's one of the themes of the book, too. Yeah, and your daughter appears in the first page of this new book, Quiet Desperation, <laughs> Savage Delight. Your, your last book was about your nephew. This one, uh, your daughter uh, defines the narrative. Uh, let me uh, quote the beginning. It's a wonderful beginning to the book about why Thoreau matters now. Uh, looking back from the end of the world, 16 years ago when my daughter was just a baby, my wife and I took her on a trip to Walden Pond. As we approached the place where Henry David Thoreau's cabin once stood, with my daughter riding up on my shoulders, I said to her, that's where the man lived who ruined your father's life. Um, David, it's lucky she was only one. I hope she don't, doesn't remember those words, does she? <laughs> well, you know, as I say in the next paragraph, ruined in a mostly good way. You know, people read Walden in high school, they're forced to, to some extent, and some are bored to death by it. But some of us become strange converts to this idea that success with a capital S isn't the only way and that there's this counter trail. I say it's a little like listening to Pink Floyd and getting stoned, except, except the effect is more lasting. You know, you have right, you, let, let me quote that uh, second, uh, <laughs> second paragraph. Uh, uh, you say, I've been thinking about Thoreau as COVID-19 sweeps across the country. Um, the obvious stuff, he was America's original social distancer and the not so obvious. Uh, Thoreau can serve as a model of self-reliance, reminding us that pulling back from the world, which at the moment will save lives, has less dramatic virtues. Having, been, having long been a corrective to our compulsive national habits of over-busyness and consumption, he can inspire just such a corrective now. Um, let's talk about Henry David Thoreau. You're an yeah. unabashed admirer, uh, and the, that, of course, comes out in, 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 in the book, in the narrative. Well, we Tell have, me more we, about we Thoreau. Have our spats, we have had our spats over the years, and temperamentally, we're quite different. As I say in the book, his phrase is, water is the only drink for a wise man, and I, you know, Beer and, and an occasional whiskey works for me as well, and I don't consider myself totally unwise. I'm, I'm glad you put up that Wikipedia thing because a little inside baseball on this stuff, you know, I am a, um, because I am a fan, I take for granted that people know the basics. And the real basic is, though he went to Harvard, he had a very undistinguished career there. He grew up in Concord and went home to Concord where Ralph Waldo Emerson, who at the time was the most famous author in the country, and people out west where I am right now had his essays on their bedside. Um, people, uh, Thoreau went back there and wanted to write about nature and nonconformity, just as Emerson had, but he was a lot quirkier, and he really wasn't talking about theoretical nature. He was talking about nuts and berries in the ground nature. And in, in 1845, he moved to Walden, the pond near, near Concord, 
or in Concord, and he built a cabin, and that cabin was on Emerson's land. So he was effectively squatting on Emerson's land. And he lived there for two years and change. And he gets a lot of flack because he wasn't John Muir. He wasn't out in the wild wilderness. He was at home. But it was an intellectual experiment more than anything. And he said, I have traveled a good deal in Concord, meaning he knew his own backyard. And what a great line, wherever you were. I don't know if where, where you were during the pandemic, but you have to travel a good, great deal in that backyard. And of course, one of the first and most obvious lessons we all learned during the early pandemic is that of, of learning our backyard. And for me, it was particularly interesting because I had just rebuilt the writing shack that I'd built that had been destroyed in, um, in Hurricane Florence. And right. I went down to that shack instead of going into my office at school where I was department chair. And I started to study the fiddler crabs and the clapper rails and birds behind. And I realized that this time of isolation for us was really a time of connection for the natural world. Uh, migrations were sweeping through. And I've always been, as you know, like a studier of my backyard, but it intensified and it became- Yeah, you put it very nicely about Thoreau. You said Thoreau believed in learning his place, not in society, but I guess in the world. And, and, and you're suggesting, I mean, in, in the book, um, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight is as much about your own learning your place than it, than yeah. it is about Thoreau. It's equally about the two. I'm curious, David, you know, Thoreau is a very controversial, interestingly, a very controversial figure. Yeah. Um, there was a piece uh, here we have Thoreau represented almost as the, the devil incarnate. There was a, a very critical piece in The New Yorker in 2015, The Moral Judgments of Henry David Thoreau. Uh, which describes uh, Walden as the original ca uh, cabin porn. You write about this in, in the book. Why, um, and, and of course, you respond, you say you were very angry. Uh, what is it about Thoreau that is so divisive amongst writers and thinkers? Why does he bring out a lot of admiration uh, as well as uh, criticism? And as you say, you understand both. Sure. Um, first of all, that piece in The New Yorker was originally titled Pond Scum. Uh, now, I know for, from experience... <laughs> well, it was journal, all written to upset you, David, I think. Yes, exactly. Um, I know as a journalist, I know that writers very infrequently choose their own titles. So it wasn't the writer's fault. But the idea was, oh, this guy claims to be a nature guy. He brings his laundry home to mom on Sundays. He's really not what he says he is. But I think that's a misinterpretation of what Thoreau set out to do. Um, since we said we were going to talk a little bit about writing, one thing people don't mention is there was a very practical reason to go to Walden Pond. He was a young writer. He had a job as a surveyor. He didn't have much money. In fact, him not having much money is a theme of Walden. As writers, unless we get incredibly lucky, publish when we're 23, 24. Or our wives get lucky. Or our wives get lucky. Um, we have to find a practical means of surviving. When that businessman at a cocktail party tells you in college, don't go into the arts, there's no money in it. He's right. <laughs> it took me till I was 36 to publish my first book. And so you, uh, there, you, you write about this. You, you had a piece in uh, the New York Times called Those Who Write Teach. 
um, yes. back yes. in 2008. Um, you suggest that uh, in some ways the, the mid-19th century, Melville, Thoreau, uh, Whitman, it was all driven by academics' writing. Um, I'm, I'm curious, David, what have you learned as a writer about yourself and the economics and the profession of writing from our year of crisis? And what does Thoreau yeah. teach us or help us teach? Well, let me unwind this a little bit because I do want to go back and say, uh, like the writer of the New Yorker piece, I have my qualms with, with Henry as well. But we talked a little bit about historical empathy when we were talking about Roosevelt. And it's, you know, my thing with Thoreau is, this is a guy who wrote Civil Disobedience, which both Gandhi and Martin Luther King cite as a prime influence of theirs. In fact, I have an extended quote from Martin Luther King saying, this was my template for the protests in the 60s. So whatever we say of him, uh, his, his recent biographer, Laura Wall, said he didn't go to Walden to escape the world, but to confront it. And I really do feel one thing about this year which is very similar to Henry's years, was it was intensely private and withdrawn, but it was intensely public. I mean, he was fighting against uh, slavery and the Mexican War with the, a passion similar to what happened during our summer. So first, that's my reaction to your first question. As far as writing goes, um, one of the themes of the book that starts with that very per first page that you read is that there's a counter life to the ambitious, straightforward life. And for me, in my 20s, I was cranking out clunky novels where the characters quoted Thoreau to each other and uh, never got published, you know, Thomas Wolfe-like megalomania novels. And at the same time, I was keeping a journal inspired by Thoreau. And the journal wasn't brilliant. You know, I'd have the weather in there or somebody I had a crush on, something. But slowly, my journal voice evolved. And when I finally did start to publish, I did so on using my journal voice. And I said in a piece I just did for LitHub, an excerpt that um, it was like a nurse tree, you know, a nurse log in the forest that out of those old failures, uh, the future writing grew. And I really think in a way, Thoreau is the patron saint of failure. Um, and and by, by that, I mean, like when I built the shack, I still write in the morning to deadline on my real writing in my office. But in the evening, I go out beer in hand to the shack. And that's my more Thoreauvian time when I bird watch, let ideas float in and out, read. And so the whole book, and in, for me, the pandemic in a way, was about embracing this other side. And that's really what I, I kind of learned from, from Thoreau during this year. And I'll say also that I realize that the word lessons is a little scary when it comes to the pandemic. My sister was working in a hospital watching people die. My mom was in a nursing home. A very good friend died during the summer. So I'm not saying this kind of glibly and easily, but I do feel like those lessons of trying to do with less, despite human nature, despite the fact it's very hard, with trying to create a more private self and a more authentic self are extremely valid in this age of crisis. Yeah, going from uh, Thoreau's Wikipedia page to your own, uh, you both went to Harvard. You were both aspiring writers who perhaps weren't entirely successful, especially as, as younger individuals. You're both very ambivalent about fame. Do you think of yourself as a, 
if not an aspiring uh, Thoreau, certainly with someone uh, as someone with quite a lot in common? Well, my earlier influence than Thoreau was Philip Roth, who we won't, yeah. who we, we won't get well, into. You're not that. allowed to talk about Philip Roth yes, these days, Dave. Be, well, this is supposed to be on LitHub, so we'll be thrown off if we even mention yes. that word. I will say two things totally uh, separate from the controversy about Roth. Writing, not personality or trouble. One of the funniest writers ever, whatever else he is, and one of the most voice-driven writers. And for me as a writer throughout my career, it's, I've evolved to being a very voice-driven writer. So I don't know that I want to be Thoreau when I grow up, but I want to, the, the, in fact, that's one of the lessons in one of the main chapters of the book. The joke is people read Thoreau, which is about somebody being exactly himself, right? And they go, they don't go, I want to be exactly like myself. They go, I want to be like Thoreau. But really, to me, the lesson of Thoreau is trying to be your own quirky, authentic self. And yeah, I, I want to get back to the idea of being uh, the self. You say everyone reads Thoreau. Uh, that New Yorker piece said the problem with Thoreau, and this isn't Thoreau's problem, really, is that nobody reads him, uh, which you, uh, David Gessner, reads him. I'm not sure if anybody else does. Um, I want to go back to this comparison, though, in all seriousness, David, between Roth and... Um, and Thoreau, because I thought you said again, we weren't allowed to talk. Well, wait, about we can, we can, because I don't think anyone really watches this. Um, <laughs> Roth's books and his character, and Roth as a person is why he's so controversial. Now, he did indeed, of course, embrace the world, particularly sexuality. I don't know how much he drank and ate, but he certainly wasn't a monk like um, Thoreau. You note in the book that Thoreau didn't have a lot of sex either. Um, right. Is that an important distinction? Can one write about the world and not have a lot of sex and not drink, drink and eat a lot and not sort of celebrate humanness in, in, in all its best and worst forms as probably Roth did? Well, I would say there's plenty of room for, for all of it. But I would say, related to my book, what I've always tried to do and which constantly gets misinterpreted, I feel like, is use the equivalent of a fictional persona. This is related to Roth and my early reading of, of novelists. And that persona is me. And because I am not Thoreau, because I have had a life of relative excess as far as drinking and eating and impulsiveness, not sexual impulsiveness, but <laughs> other, um, I am the reader's conduit to Thoreauvian ideas. And I never think I'm going to be that pure and perfect as you know as as Henry might have been. Um, but my thing is, they can serve as kind of a north star, as an aspirational point. And if I, sloppy, hypocritical, messy me, can kind of start stumbling my way in that direction, then maybe the reader can come along a little bit in that direction. And it's not that I, you know, I'm not talking about some kind of monk-like purity. But things like doing with trying to discipline yourself to do with less patience, which I write about in the book, which isn't easy patience. It's not groovy patience. I remember Linda Hogan, the great Native American writer, was my teacher at Colorado. And she said, go out and watch an animal. I went out and watched a great blue heron. I thought it was silly exercise. And by the end, it had changed my writing life. And I watched the bird wait, 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 strike. And I thought, that's what patience is. 
patience patience isn't patience because it's this groovy virtue. It's patience because it's effective and it works. And as a writer, it works. So the, the thing that I'm trying to do with my books is take a very human point of view toward these loftier ideals and also realize that most of the time we fail, right? And so for, for me, biography, as I, I talked to you about it last time with the Roosevelt book, biography really took hold for me when I had Walter Jackson Bate, great professor and biographer of Samuel Johnson. Uh, and he talked about how Johnson said, biography was his favorite art form because it's what we can put to use in our lives. So we steal from these things. Sure, I don't wanna be Thoreau. Uh, there's lots of boring passages in Walden, but there's some things like the phrase I use on the first page, the life that men praise and call successful is but one kind. That's always stuck with me as kind of a counterbalance to this you know, idea of achievement and fame and success. But, so, but I mean, he's, he's certainly not the only or the last person to write about that. One of the things, David, I, one of the, the passages I loved in the book um, uh, was, uh, uh, I'm quoting you, not long ago, a friend posted on social media that he would really like to do in these times in the, is the, what he really would like to get rid of during these times is the imperative voice. I get it. The imperative is the voice of those do-gooders at Thoreau's door whom he wanted to run away with. But it's also the voice of Thoreau. Henry is all imperative, all musts and shoulds. Um, even when not explicitly didactic, he speaks in what I'd call the implied imperative. Right. He was a preacher. I mean, he may not have been, and I know his relationship with organized religion is complicated, but there is something deeply Christian and then, of course, American about Thoreau, isn't there, about this imperative voice? I'm going I'm to push back on two things. You got one word wrong. You said the do-gooders he wanted to run away with. It's from. Oh, he hated, he ha hated do-gooders and he hated dogmatism of all, all forms. So he was an American in that sense, but he also was a, a very committed pagan. Um, you know, he had, they used to call it his edible religion. I mean, he did want to throttle a, a woodchuck for the savage, that's where the title comes, for the, for the savage delight he got from it. So he's a complicated figure, and I think he does a pretty good job, if you read him carefully, of like his buddy, or not his buddy, but the, he met him one time, Whitman, of, of living in contradictions. You know, do I contradict myself? So we do have this preacherly um, aspect to him. Uh, and they may not be knee slappers, but there are a lot of there are a lot of implied and real jokes in there. Uh, so he's I think he he preaches, but he undermines it in an interesting way. He's I mean, not as funny as Roth, though. I know I'm not allowed to mention <laughs> Roth. Uh, David, you end um, again a very profound statement about Thoreau. You say Thoreau, while he profoundly influenced political thought, was the opposite of a politician. Um, I'm not sure that's actually true, but anyway, but few on planet Earth have excelled him at the skill that defined him. That was being exactly himself. And that's what seems to have inspired you as well. Yeah. Isn't there something troublingly libertarian about this, about this focus, this obsession with the self? Yeah, and we were just talking yesterday, a lot of his political ideas were well-suited, you know, or were... were interesting in the time, but right now 
would read like Ron Paul kind of stuff. So yeah, so I yes. think he would actually be at home in Silicon Valley. If, if Thoreau came back to life now, he'd probably be a, a startup entrepreneur. Well, the, there was a good book. Um, I'm not going to get it right. Uh, what's his name? I'm not going to say it because I don't want to get his name wrong. But people have written about how a lot of the reputation was wrong. Like, for instance, Walden is below the, ma the high road in Concord. And people would literally call down, what the hell are you doing there, Henry? And in a way, Walden is a, is a response to that. Here is what I did in the woods, right? And to me, there was an aspect of neighborliness to Walden um, and to hit Thoreau, who was a favorite of the kids in town and would take him out on Huckleberry parties. So neighborliness was another theme of the book. I had a Trump supporting next door neighbor who was one of the only people I saw in the early days of the pandemic. And we got along pretty well, despite our differences in politics. And after the night after the election, he dropped a six pack of IPA on my doorstep. Yeah, that's a great story. I, I think it's one of the, the, the most warming stories in the book. Uh, finally, yeah. David, let's let's leave Thoreau for a yes. moment and, and, and talk about the crisis. Um, it's one that's dominated this show. Yesterday, I had a, a, a professor on the show called Lydie Klotz. He has a, a new book out called Subtract, The uh, Untapped Science of Less. Everything's talking about subtraction, about less. I had right. the philosopher, scientist Peter Sterling on the show recently, What is Health? Tim Jackson, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, lots of environmental books by Mario Alejandro Ariza, Eric Holthaus, Hannah Tester, Scott Russell Sanders, who blurbs your book. What can Thoreau teach us or help us in terms of confronting today's crisis, the real crisis of right. fried starfish, of, of, of the ocean being turned into a, a giant um, uh, soup of, 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 of dead animals? Well, um you know, I have that chapter early on about rewilding, which we spoke about. When we yeah, I'm about fascinated, that. actually, with rewilding. Talk about that a little bit. And uh, this was a concept we talked about a year ago when we talked about the Y2Y corridor from Yellowstone to Yukon and the attempt to bring wildlife back. Um, in that case, there's an over... They had overpasses that were vegetated and underpasses that were vegetated, and they actually did bring the big carnivores back. But for those of us who were at home, say in April, we were suddenly seeing examples of rewilding on our screens. Uh, for me, the most telling moment was, or the most exciting moment, was seeing in my old hometown of, of Boulder, seeing two mountain lions stroll down through a snowstorm down Main Street. At work, when I started going back into work, I was the only one there. So there was a post-apocalyptic, you know, Will Smith feel to it. And one day somebody knocked, which startled me. And it was a campus cop. And she said, we started to talk about this. And she said, oh, you should see it at night. There are coyotes walking down Chancellor's Walk and deer nibbling, you know, by the rec center. So there was an excitement. What if we did take a couple months off a year? Would it make a difference in the world? What if we did this regularly? Now, the the downside of that, the less hopeful side, is I talked to many scientists who were kind of looking at this like a giant science experiment of doing with less, and they were not seeing the results we most hoped for. 
air is a good one because air can change quickly air quality like people are suddenly seeing the himalayas but some things will take a lot longer that's going to be a lot more than me doing with a little less you know in my private life it's going to be big governmental changes probably the election that just happened had more much more to do with it than any moral stuff or anything that thoreau could and, and 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 finally, David, what what kind of reform do we need? Do we need hardcore regulation, legislation? Can the planet survive uh, in 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 the context of our capitalist economy? Or do as do we need, as Peter ja- um, as Tim Jackson says, suggests, do we need to get to a post-capitalist age? Well, Thoreau wouldn't like the word massive regulation, would he? <laughs> well, and he might I, if he came back to life 150 years later when he saw the world, how it's changed. Right. To me, there are lots of big structural things that do indeed need what you said. But the enemy remains as a writer dealing with human beings, human nature. And one of my favorite quotes is by an old professor of mine who died a couple months ago. And it's, we humans are an elsewhere. The fact that an essential part of how we've evolved is to be looking over the next hill and to be dissatisfied with our current state leads to a hunger. Samuel Johnson called it the hunger of the imagination. And it's a pretty relentless hunger. So um, in the end, having just turned 60, I don't know how hopeful I am. Don't tell my daughter, but um, I just don't see us. That's an enemy that's going to be hard to beat. The fact our own relentless hunger. And yes, less is the answer, but how do we get to less? I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, administrator, I don't know what the answer is. I know that's a hard, hard road, though. Sorry to end on a darker note. Well, David, I hope uh, your next book will be about that in terms of exploring it. Your your latest book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, has all your trademark erudition, wonderful, beautiful writing, uh, a grasp both of history and of uh, the contemporary age. Um as jokes, I, jokes too, Andrew. Jokes. And jokes, and no sex, no food, no drink, but there are jokes. Um, although it's not quite as funny as your last book, I, I thought. It's more serious, I think, because perhaps we're living in an even deeper crisis. But finally, David, um, as I said, that savage New Yorker piece suggested that nobody reads Walden. As you acknowledged at the beginning, everyone's heard of Thoreau, but not everyone's read him or even knows about his life. If there's one book to read either by Thoreau or on Thoreau, or perhaps two books in addition to your new book, uh, which I think is is a must read for fans of Thoreau, as well as um, anyone who loves a wonderful read, uh, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, what do you think people should read? How, what's, what's the best introductory text, the gateway to Thoreau? What I would suggest, and this is going to sound obvious at first, um, is read Walden the way I've read Walden over the years. I read it straight through once when I was teaching a class called When Thoreau Met Darwin. They didn't actually meet, but the overlap. Yeah, you the got some great stuff on Thoreau and Darwin as well, which we don't have time for either. Um, what, what The way I've really read him is eclectically jumping around and picking when anything interests me and skipping when it, bo- when it bored you. Because Walden, unlike some of the other stuff, is, are these condensed nuggets from the journal distilled over the years. So if you're saying, oh, he's going off about uh, Huckleberry, uh, skip ahead to where he talks about money and how money really should be thought of as the amount of human effort we put into it. Um, skip ahead to the end where you know 
He says the sun is but a morning star. Uh, so I would jump around as far as a book about it. Um, I love Robert Richardson's biography, um, The Life of the Mind, about Thoreau. Robert Richardson uh, died this past year, too. He's married to Annie Dillard, um, great writer, wrote a great biography of Emerson called The Mind on Fire also. But I also think the recent biography by Laura Walls um, is fantastic of Thoreau. Or Thoreau. Right. We mispronounced his name the whole show. It's Thoreau, which I can't quite bring my Thoreau. Thoroughly Thoreau. Well, David Gessner, you're anything, if not thorough, uh, in your analysis of Thoreau. You, 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 you write like you read, Walden, jumping around, only skipping to the best bits, not, nothing boring in your work, wonderful uh, diary, a very elegant, um, seductive diary of, of your life in, 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 in the year of the crisis of COVID and lots of wonderful work on Thoreau and on our, on our, our environmental crisis as well as the art of writing. Congratulations on this new book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight. And I want a new book, David, about fixing the planet this time next year and you'll be back on the show, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to slow down. I'm trying to write less too as far as less goes, but it's hard. Hard to slow down.